Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. My guest for this episode is 14 researcher and author Anthony Tyler, who joined me to talk about his book, Dive Manual, Empirical Investigations of Mysticism, which details his experiences researching a wide range of esoteric subjects and the methodology he developed to best try to understand the results of those investigations and their deeper meaning. Given the nature of the subject matter and its personal nature, the book is an impressive accomplishment and a fascinating insight into someone's experiences engaging with weirdness head-on. We had a lot to talk about, which is evidenced by the running time of this episode, the longest one of the podcast so far. It's all killer, though. I promise. Enjoy. Anthony, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you very much for having me. Pleasure to be here. Uh, not at all. To start off with, just talk a little bit about yourself and your background and what prompted you to write your book. Yeah, um, I mean, honestly, very candidly, um, writing the book was... Uh, a self-preservation thing. It was, I mean, really like, as we'll get into here, um, art and the religious or mystical experience in and of itself really is, uh, it's a really quintessential adaptation mechanism. And it's something that's propelled the human experience as we know it uh, to this day uh, from the beginning. And so uh, for me, you know, everyone's got their own pitfalls in life and for me, I started out on uh, different pharmaceutical medications when I was young. I basically, uh, before I graduated high school, I was a, I was addicted to uh, benzodiazepines. It was uh, technically, what was the one it was? Uh, Clonopin. So not Xanax, but in the same family as Xanax. And uh, th- those have pretty, uh, pretty considerable withdrawals. You know, the, uh, the uh, infamous slash famous Jordan Peterson right now, you know, he's just coming out of uh, really intensive uh, benzo rehabilitation, and that's why he's been off the map for so long. So it can be, uh, you know, the benzo crisis is really on par with the the opioid crisis. The opioids are something that's kind of taken more of the spotlight, but they're both really dangerous, honestly, and. Uh, so for me, yeah, I also had antidepressants in the mix. And again, this is before I graduated high school. So it, uh, and I, I think these things, SSRIs at least, uh, they can have more efficacy with uh, fully developed brains. But at this point, the way I see it, I really don't think any children should be on medication. Um, this is my opinion, not as a medical expert, but and from my experiences. And, and so that left me with, you know, I was never like, I always had friends. I could always make conversation. I was never like extremely socially awkward, but I felt really like disassociated from my internal experience to a really chronic and uh, pretty intense point where, you know, like as a kid, you're so drugged up, uh, especially when I got off of this stuff. Eventually, when I did graduate high school, you feel like it's a strange thing, man. And you really wonder how much of yourself even seems to exist because it's been so buffered and and dampened by uh these you know it's weird in some way it's like you're letting big pharma into your brain chemistry you know and it it, it changes you and you have to get reacquainted with yourself afterward and 
that's no different uh, with uh, prescriptions as it is with, you know, illicit street substances for that matter. But so for me, I had to realize, and it was, it was coming through in dreams and, and art. I've always been an artist, whether it's drawing or a little bit of painting or what, writing, whatever. Um, you, the more you, uh, I don't, let me put it like this, in a situation especially where, where you're doing any self-work, but especially if there's some sort of um, substance the, the, that's a really big like focal point, that seems to be an inevitable thing that, you know, if you're coming off of a substance, that's, that's really going to be one of the main uh, pieces in your life at that moment. And you really start to, I don't know, peek behind Oz's curtain, so to speak, of your projection process. You're reacquainting, uh, you're getting reacquainted with yourself and you, uh, you see yourself in, in different lights, uh, the ways you, you know, didn't before. And that's kind of, in order to really start to sift out what all is going on there, you know, like dreams being a good example, um, a, a quintessential example that any single human being can relate to whether or not you remember your dreams regularly or not. Um, and, you know, so if you start to pick apart these things, you find that there is, um, there's, there's real, real tangible merit and value to them, but it's not exactly on, obviously it's not on a, on a conscious straightforward level, but there are, uh, there are empirical ways to go about investigating things like dream phenomena, um, and finding out what exactly kind of messages are being conveyed and and th th therein lies the real adaptation process you know in the same way think about it like this in the same way that um a human being a, a blind person can learn to echolocate or a deaf person learns to read lips and therefore speak themselves or i mean it, it going back to the beginning of civilization when human beings started uh, figuring out categories of plants you know what's toxic and what's edible or when people started learning to build houses, all of these things are adaptation mechanisms, essentially. And uh, the the mystical, religious, esoteric, different words that ultimately strike at the same thing. The the but I I prefer to use the term mysticism um, personally. So that mystical experience is in and of itself, like I said, a quintessential adaptation mechanism. It's learning to utilize. Uh, parts of the human experience that are not readily met in the uh, in in the immediate environment that we inhabit. So, it's a good place to start, I reckon. And uh, a, a term I like to use is uh, heuristic mysticism. Heuristic being a term used in evolutionary psychology to denote this trial and error sort of um, self-education technique where. Uh, then the, the the best easiest example is the the idea that people so many people all around the world to this day think that porcupines shoot out their quills, uh, but they don't. You know, you're not gonna. Uh, the only way you're gonna get stabbed by a porcupine's quills if you run up to it or it runs up to you. But that that whole heuristic kind of half truth that you could get stabbed by a porcupine. Uh, but you're, you're just kind of lying to yourself, uh, about the distance. I mean, really what that, all that's going to do in the long run, you might get the, the, 
the answer wrong on the test, so to speak, but you're going to stay further away from the porcupine. And, you know, in a way that has a real tangible, um, like evolutionary sort of merit to it. And there's a lot of psychologists that approach um, religion and, and, and mysticism, comparative religion uh, with that heuristic mindset. And that's not to completely uh, reduce it to just this um, kind of half-truth uh, consideration, but uh, that's definitely the, the starting point, you know, because there's a cyclic affair in the human experience uh, between fact and belief. Uh, in today's society, people are so hesitant to use words like faith and belief because they feel like that uh, is counterintuitive to the to the scientific method. And I I, I guess in some ways it's counterintuitive, but it uh, it's certainly not. They don't cancel one another out. It's a really common fallacy, and it's completely false. They do not cancel one another out. And in fact, they're they're uh, if you don't have one, then the other is incomplete. Fact and belief are, uh, they need to be separate, but they need to be able to intermingle. You know, faith uh, and the belief system, um, the ideals that a human being has within them are the things that, when you look at our evolutionary process, they're the things that have propelled us into the scientific method and all of our understanding of anything as we know it right now. So, and... Uh, in that same sense, uh, science gives us more of um, a wherewithal to gauge our ideals more specifically, essentially. And so in that way, it just keeps rolling. And and so, yeah, if you don't have one or if you don't have both, then 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 the other is going to be incomplete to begin with. So, yeah, but, but fact and belief, um, very important. Mm, I mean, you're right. And it's interesting. I think that's something that people perhaps don't sort of think about is that a person can't fact check everything that happens there, all, all the information that, that comes into them, they can't fact check everything. So a lot of people will kind of store information that isn't true and just repeat it without checking that. Um, and I, I like the, the term you use for your research method, a heuristic mysticism. In regards to the book itself, you, you've titled it a dive manual. Can you just go into a bit about why you chose that title? The book's split into two parts. Based on the titles of those two parts and the chapters within them, it seems like it's a, like a, a process pretty much from start to finish. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, for starters, the alchemical process in and of itself, um, whether you're talking physically or psychologically uh i mean there is merit to uh you know whether you're talking about like literal transmutation of gold or the other you know that's that's still only one side of the physical alchemy and uh there are people who think that you know with uh bombarding you know shifting um we call it uh metals on the uh like on the atomic scale that you can actually uh radically alter um the the composition of of uh, certain certain metals and stuff, and that does seem to be at least theoretically tenable. But that so that, that's just uh, interesting food for thought, though, uh, to distinguish my research because my research is uh, very Jungian, like uh, Carl Jung, and it uh, it's not really dealing with anything physical in the tradition of alchemy. But um, um, 
the it follows the same criteria. Um, it's just one's an inward process and one's more of an outward process. And they both have to, uh, by the nature of the process, get to the heart of the impurities and the, uh, the quote unquote unknown uh, chaos in and of itself. Uh, this is what lead represents in the alchemical process. And uh, the, the dive manual, you know, it, Along with that whole alchemical process, uh, the the dichotomy of the shoreline has always been something throughout symbolism that's been related to the human consciousness. You know, there's that there's that unconscious conscious dichotomy. There are the things that we're uh, that are we're readily aware of, and we readily have a certain amount of control of. And then uh, there's all that that gets stored in the back of our brain in in the in the unconscious mind, which is essentially just kind of like a, an inlet of the collective consciousness. And, you know, people get really sometimes get, I feel like unnecessarily new agey with the whole collective consciousness idea, but, um, and there might be merit to that, but you don't really even need to get super metaphysical to understand, uh, the, the full scientific implications of it. I mean, just the fact that, we all have this unconscious uh, network in our own brains, and it stems from the same type of neurobiology and evolutionary uh, pressures, so to speak. Uh, we all we're all dealing with the same mechanisms, so uh, they they reflect one another, and uh, we have uh, the neurobiology to um, to incorporate other people's experiences into our own. So whether or not you have this like full blown, like metaphysical, like ether type association with the mind, I mean, the, the association is still there and scientifically validated, you know, across the board. So um, diving into that unconscious network of diving into your own unconscious mind really is like diving into the, uh, to the ocean, so to speak of the, uh, of the human experience itself. So that's really where it comes from the whole the whole dive manual metaphor. Um, you gotta you gotta dive into the the murky depths in order to, um, you know, eradicate the impurities that are entirely useless and to transmute what's there and uh, and what can be salvageable into something better. And and uh, it's not an easy process. You know, it goes into the whole uh, the whole idea of the the shadow complex in Jungian psychology because there are basically the four stages uh there's there's plenty of different archetypes uh in symbols but the like four quintessential like units i guess you could say facets of the uh the human consciousness would be the um the the masculine the feminine the persona and the shadow hmm. and um you can find those the mimicked it, it's not like that is some new like some yeah like some new age uh, symbolism or something like that those are the facets that you the archetypal facets that you can find in literally any given uh, religious or spiritual system and it's because those are some of the the uh those are the pieces of the human experience that have been most developed by our evolutionary pressures, essentially. Hmm. I mean, yeah, you're right. I mean, I know that 
in ancient Egypt, the, their concept of the soul was something that had multiple components. It wasn't just one ent- entity in itself. So, yeah. Right. One thing I'm interested in reading the book is that you explore some pretty deep concepts, some 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 very complex ideas. And I'm just wondering, did you ever get overwhelmed by these ideas? And how did you sort of manage to distill um, your own thoughts into into the book? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, sure. It was overwhelming at times uh, because... I've always loved researching this stuff and I've always loved writing about it, but you know, midway through the process or so, um, like, so uh, let me put it like this. I, uh, when he finished the rough draft or something for me, at least, um, it's still obviously very incomplete, but, but you have the initial bare bones of it. And then I remember looking back after the rough draft and thinking like, like, dear God, if, uh, if I really, I, I have the image in my mind's eye, so to speak. If and, and if I want to craft this into what I see in my mind, this is going to take. This is, this is going to be exhausting. It's going to be a full, like something I've never done before. I've done in in similar ways, but never to this magnitude. And and then especially when you're getting into the the fine tuning of the research itself. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, the research is very. It, uh, I don't know, in a way it causes you to certainly, um, reconsider your full point of view on what reality is not to say that there is uh there isn't a concrete reality, but, but people, um, I don't know, people have definitely have too narrow of a, of a mindset about it these days. And, uh, yeah, it, you know, it can, um, for me, but it, that, that just harkens back to the whole idea of where for me, it was, it was something that I had to do. And it wasn't in some sort of neurotic way, uh, like, like in a fiendish sort of way, it was something that every bit I did, it felt like, you know, not to be pretentious or anything, but it felt like building, you know, to use the Freemasonic allegory, you're, you're building your own temple, so to speak. It felt like it really therapeutic, like getting these things. Otherwise, these things were just going to bounce in my mind forever. Um, and in a way, it felt like getting it onto paper, as tedious as it may have been, was this, uh, yeah, very much this release process where it's not just going to be in my mind anymore. It can rest in these pages. And um, in in that way, you know, art, writing this book about art in general is kind of kind of like um, a, a magic trick in the in the archetypal therapeutic sense of of releasing this and uh, and putting it out into the world so it's um, um, I guess you could say you know hard work pays off one way or the other like I uh, I didn't quit my day job or anything but I didn't expect to you know I got this book out there and I'm uh, I'm real happy with it but but yeah it, it was <laughs> There were times for sure where I, I thought like uh, I had no idea how long it was going to take, you know, um, and it did take a while. I mean, from the beginning of because some of it is uh, is prose uh, and f- from the beginning of the the story uh, to now uh, or to the release of the book, at least it was like seven years. So I wasn't slaving away over a manuscript the whole time by any means. But I mean, it was essentially a seven year process. So it did take a while. 
No, not at all. I mean, I, I think you did a great job. Anybody that can succinctly talk about the tree of life in Kabbalah has my respect because I, I always find myself having to kind of reread it and, and try and get it in my head as to, as to how, how it works. I think I think too literally sometimes. So when you think of a tree, I, I, I find it hard to kind of not think of a of a literal tree. And I understand the concept of things like the tree of life and Yggdrasil and, and the idea of an axis mundi around which different realities kind of are are fixed. But but yeah, I, I think you did a really good job of that. The first part of the book, the esoteric science, that, that felt a bit like the stages of preparing yourself for the sort of the, the diving part of the experience that you're describing. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, one hundred percent. You know, and that's a just a common motif found throughout, you know, whether you want to look at the the classical alchemists or the classical like occultists who are, you know, doing their, their preparations before their ritual and ceremony, like fasting or any, any number of different things, but there's always some sort of preparation process. Even if you're going to build a house, you want the lumber and all the, all the materials there. So, um, and, you know, in, in a way the dive, uh, using the dive allegory is, is just kind of meant to impress upon a reader who might be unfamiliar with looking at, uh, the the psyche in these in these tangible kind of like scientific units um it's just to show that that even e- even the psychological processes have a, a a methodical approach to them something that you know it's chaos theory chaos theory not implying that you know people have like some general misconceptions of chaos theory it's it yes it, it implies that the the universe is chaos essentially but it also implies that there is order that can be found in the chaos. Like that's the theory of chaos theory is that you can, you can find the synthesis. Um, so uh, that's, that's what we're doing here. And uh, you have to, you have to, you have to, if you don't take the proper steps to understand what you're even getting into, then it's going to be, it's going to be pretty useless to begin with, or it might not be entirely useless, but you're going to, you're going to lose a lot of the nuance, um, like, you know, to get more specific, like, for example, if you don't understand, you don't have a cursory knowledge of symbolism, then how are you going to begin to decipher your dreams? Um, so, so yeah, you need to, you need to have a little bit of a, a cursory understanding of these things and not just for your own education purposes, but to make sure that you're not led astray because I mean, that's what the, the shadow complex is it's not necessarily a demon or, or anything it's it's a part of your own psyche but the point of the 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 whole shadow motif is that the unknown has the hidden gems and the hidden monsters so you uh you have to be wary of those things and you know there are different ways with which your own unconscious uh can manifest to you and before i get into that a little more i'll say and i'm not like purely a materialist like atheist here by any stretch of the imagination i talk about these things in psychological terms but that's just because i think that's where the that's where the trail begins i don't think that's exactly where the trail ends and uh you know i think i think there are definitely you know, I have my own beliefs and I think that there are a lot of things that 
uh, we will never be able to fully explain. So I'm not exactly trying to explain away all these things. I'm just trying to build some initial frameworks with how these things might be operating uh, with the common or with the modern data that we have. So that being said, um, there are different ways with which the unconscious mind will you know, present itself to you. Uh, it's not, it's not ever going to be straightforward. It's always going to be uh, symbolic. And, you know, Jacques Vallée actually talks about this with the the UFO experience and, and Jung talks about it as well. It, and it's a very like John Keel Fortean approach. It's to, and you hear Manly P. Hall, the 33rd degree Freemason who did thousands of lectures and wrote lots of books. It's a very common theme um, that, actually kind of is in essence the wedding of like 40 and unexplainable phenomena and and esotericism in the modern age this idea that these things come to us uh by definition in a way that is not exactly um accepted on the common conscious levels of acceptance like um your own mystical experience you know, whichever specific category that ends up falling under um, is usually, you know, especially in today's age, uh, it's not something that is really applicable to the political structure or to uh, the scientific model, you know, et cetera. And so it, it becomes relegated to this, uh, this specific part of our psyche and our experience that is highly personal and almost requires um, a state of suspended disbelief because even the skeptics who experience these things um, can't, you know, even if they question the, the, the ontology of these experiences, meaning like where they initially stem from, they can't deny that they've had the experience and therein lies the, the serious, um, uh, the, the the thing that every human being has to wrestle with, even if you're a skeptic. And um, yeah, that's it's very curious. And, and the, so the more you look at that, the more you find that there are all sorts of different um, phenomenological ways that these things can uh, interact with us or, and, you know, it, uh, you, yeah, you, you have to, you have to be able to know, you have to be able to have some sort of uh, irreducible complexity, uh, some Occam's razor to the whole situation. Because at this point, if you're talking about um, unexplainable phenomena, whether it be Fortean or esoteric, you know, that, there's all, there's so many categories there. <laughs> yeah, that you could, you're wandering into the wilderness essentially, and you could get lost real quick. So the, uh, the, the Occam's razor of it all for me is, and, and this is, uh, you know, th there are different approaches, uh, but, but I think this is the best place for people to start, especially if you're new to this kind of stuff, you start with the evolutionary psychology of it. Evolution, not, not strictly, of course, implying that like we came from primates or anything. It's just, it's implying the long scale adaptation process, you know, wherever it started, it's there's clearly a process happening and that's undeniable. So we, we got to look into why, you know, how these things have. So if, if you have an experience, 
and it, you know this kind of gets into the second part of the book at this point the diver you know if you're having a dive experience and and generally speaking i use the dive as um as something more uh more voluntary so to speak whether it's um like ceremony ritual meditation uh, the the hypnotic mechanisms that go along with those things or uh or dreams because not exactly voluntary but pretty close because you're you know you're going to sleep every night but uh but it doesn't it, it it's not exclusively those voluntary processes because i mean in a way you're very much diving into the deep end uh whether you wanted to or not when you when you feel like you just had a a, a you know a cryptid sighting or or just saw a ufo or just maybe had a experience some sort of ghost presence uh anything and um yeah it's it's really important to understand that's why i use the the trees of life and death and, and that's why i also use the the heuristic uh definition because let's be real in the long run i mean spiritual disciplines have been updated with the human experience as long as they've been around and there's always dogma and doctrine but if nothing else if there's if there is dogma that keeps certain things from being updated people's perspectives on these things always always uh continue to expand and um yeah you need to uh i don't know there's when you're what's the best way to put it so I guess I could put it like this. Ultimately, um, you need to look at the uh, something. You need to have some sort of ideal like cornerstones with which to uh, gauge your experience with. And that's where the spiritual disciplines come in. And, and that's why it's an adaptation process. You know, you could use the trees of life and death, which are pretty quintessential archetypal um, I mean, they're so useful on an empirical level because, it, I mean, it's found throughout comparative religion the world over, even though the the Hebrew forms are usually the, the most widely discussed. Um, and they they permeate through all of mythology and folklore as we know it today. But be, you don't necessarily need those. You need something like even even the materialist atheist has ideals like you could look at. You know, it's uh, Sam Harris is an interesting case. The 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 neuroscientist who wrote the the moral landscape and his uh, he has the whole idea that free will doesn't exist. Uh, but curiously, even he admits that a human being needs to act as if free will exists. And even he talks about Buddhist principles and meditation. So this seemingly fairly nihilistic. And he's a really I have a lot of respect for Sam Harris. I think he's a good dude, but his uh, his overall like scientific conclusions seem pretty nihilistic. But yeah, even still, the guy has to have his own um, spiritual disciplines, even if he doesn't fully um, believe in them to the extent that the uh, the doctrine recommends. So yeah, it's very curious. I think it's a perfect prime example of how even if you try to explain these things away rationally you still i mean you still have to deal with them um all the same and that's you know therein lies the the serious issue um because in 
how much are you really explaining it away at that point? You're not, essentially. <laughs> so you got to learn to dive. Dive or drown. Mm, exactly. I'm going back to your earlier point. I think you're right in that the the idea that some supernatural phenomena might be manifestations of a person's subconscious um i don't think that takes any agency away from those experiences or the sort of entities that people see it's just a it's just a way of of them a way of them manifesting isn't it it doesn't i don't think it takes anything away from them in terms of their existence no it certainly does not um not by any stretch like some uh, some interesting examples. So when you look into sleep paralysis, uh, you see that essentially, you know, from a scientific perspective, uh, you know, from a from an evidence perspective as well, um, the what's happening is your sleep process is becoming interrupted, and at that point where biologically your brain has shut down the parts that are really like associated to your psychomotor functions. Uh, but but all of a sudden you become conscious, your brain is actually going to rudimentarily project y- your own like self-image, you know, your your neurological map of yourself in a general sense uh, somewhere else. It's a dysfunction process. But that do- that that see that explains a little bit of the phenomenology, which is very interesting, but it doesn't really explain hardly any of it in the long run in terms of the full scope of the experience. I mean, that doesn't explain why people have these, uh, these running archetypal motifs of like the old hags and the, um, the shadow people, you know, the, there's all sorts of talk online of different kinds of shadow people, like the, the hat man, the guy who's wearing like a fedora and all, all sorts of different things. It's a, it's a really interesting rabbit hole to go down. Um, the, the, entities that people encounter during sleep paralysis and they're all very you know they uh in each different uh anecdotal piece there's there's all sorts of anomalous activity basically to 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 break it down in a general sense like things that even if you do want to play devil's advocate and say that it's all just coming from the brain like it's just here's the thing is at a certain point what by what measure are you gauging how real these things are like cognitively speaking because we can say that maybe they aren't sentient but what is sentience to begin with what is consciousness to begin with we still don't nearly have we we barely have an understanding of the the full scope and ramifications of our own individual consciousness so until we have something to gauge how conscious other things may or may not be, or I mean, yeah, until we are going to learn how conscious other things may or may not be, we have to have a gauge. And right now we have absolutely no scientific gauge. Uh, We only have bits and pieces. It's kind of like quantum physics where we have bits and pieces where we have our foot in the door a little bit. We can kind of see a little bit of what's going on scientifically, but in terms of the full process, no one has any idea. So, so, yeah, I mean, if anything, looking into these things only, in my opinion, further advocates for the agency of these types of experiences. And I mean, who's to say that they aren't becoming um, physical in some way or like maybe trans physical or quasi physical? Uh, that's a very Keelian approach, I feel like, where 
you know, if if uh, there are all sorts of accounts from the east to the west of different religious wounds like stigmata or um, like even things like rainbow body that happen with uh, with Buddhist monks where uh, like their bodies uh, like shrink right after death and, and all, all sorts of crazy things. Um, like how is the if if in and for that matter, you know, people with um what do you call it? Multiple personality disorder. They, in some cases, can actually change the the color, the the shade of their eye color. Mm. Um, yeah, all you know, even like, yeah, it, it, there's all sorts of different examples. But the point being, um, you know, like you could get into possession at that point. Like all the strange um, accounts of. Um, that is some of which are very, very well documented, um, even on like a scientific level of uh, possession cases where there's all sorts of strange anomalous things happening. And it really begs the question of, um, can you conjure a state of mind, perhaps even a collective state of mind amongst multiple people um, that can... It, it, in a sense, induce such a strong hypnotic effect that these things become to the experiencer as physical as anything else they would experience. And I think the evidence says yes, absolutely. And then again, at that point, it's like if it's becoming physical to you know one or a hundred people, like take the 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 case of Fatima, uh, the you know the Catholic, as some people feel like that's a UFO sighting. It gets very fortean very quick. Um, you know, if it's, um, um, yeah, I mean, if it's essentially physical to like a whole horde of people, then if it is in a, in one way coming or at least stemming initially from us, from some sort of psychological components, I mean, for all intents and purposes, it's transcended the physical, the, or, uh, the psychological components from there. So you, you, so you can't look at it in a purely psychological perspective, um, and that really, that really challenges, that really kind of bends and warps the, the threshold of what we know between the, the subjective and the objective at that point. And I don't think that they're entirely, you know, it's not to say that we should abolish the, the difference between the two, because there is subjective and objective. And, but it's the, kind of the same thing as fact and belief. I mean, they, they very much echo each other. It's a very similar dichotomy um, where... Um, you have to, yeah, the uh, subjective and objective is definitely a cyclic effect. And in the same way as fact and belief, in the middle of those cycles, you can find some interesting middle ground thresholds. And, and I mean, science is only, the more that modern science, uh, you know, just continues to expand itself, the less it explains this stuff away. You know, people want to talk about scientific materialism and the whole Sam Harris, uh, Richard Dawkins kind of mindset, but you still haven't explained any of it away yet. <laughs> and if anything, it's just giving more, more fodder to the possibility that these things do exist. Like Richard Dawkins tried to explain that, um, that religious sentiment and symbols are mimetic in the sense that they're like a virus and, and, you know, he's very vehement with it. And, uh, you know, he wrote the God delusion and all these things, but, I mean, viruses can be good or bad, ultimately. Uh, there are several different viruses that have actually contributed to 
the human adaptation process. And I'm not a virologist, but I do believe that they have been essentially incorporated into our genetic structure at this point. Like they're part of the human biome. And um, so, yeah, I mean, again, just another example of how you could try to explain these things away and they will poke holes in some of it. There are some religious, mystical, esoteric pieces that, I mean, are essentially pretty much just uh, superstition and, you know, even very hateful in some cases. But uh, clearly you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater because if you could just put it like this, if spiritual ideas were not useful to begin with, they would have been they would have been done away with a long 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 time ago because uh nature doesn't make any waste you know nothing is wasted in the evolutionary process so these things would have been tossed to the wayside hmm. going back to talking about uh subjectivity and objectivity how often in your in your own studies and the research that you've done like your heuristic mysticism do you find duality in, in certain esoteric models because it seems like there's quite a lot of things like mind and body and spirit and body life and death objectivity and subjectivity do you think that those that concept is helpful when it comes to trying to understand these very esoteric concepts yeah quintessential even um it, it you really i don't think you can hardly begin to understand these esoteric concepts until you understand that however whichever type of category or school of thought or discipline that you want to look into there's always it's always going to start with the schism you know because not only is that the the human experience of the the conscious and unconscious um and even like the macrocosm and microcosm um it's it's also, you know, how we interpret the world around us to begin with, because there's always going to be the objective that you that you kind of process through your own filter, and you are gonna, if you do it right, be able to glean certain facts from it. But is you know a very like Buddhist notion in the sense of as soon as you comprehend something, it's immediately somewhat false, just because you don't have the full objective scope of it. So when you're looking into these things, you have to, uh, yeah, you essentially, you have to be in, this is, this is where people, some people get uncomfortable because they don't like this middle ground of investigation. You have to be willing to, um, or confident enough to vet out empirically and to, you know, have your own, um, research process that can actually verify certain things on a concrete level so you know what you're dealing with but you also at the same time have to have to be willing to understand that just because you have an outlook that is vetted out and something that you can uh you can rely on in in one way or another that doesn't mean that that's the full story by any stretch of the imagination and that's such a huge problem with uh with not just the, the scientific materialists but often with like the the general pretentious occultists or, or new agers, they, once they find that they've validated or verified some of the things that they understand, they feel like that verifies everything that, that they already know. And, and then you can't tell them that they're wrong. And that's a, yeah, that's a serious problem. You can't, you're going to have a hard time 
uh, striking to the heart of the matter and getting any truth out of anything if you already feel like you have all the truth. Hmm. It's often the way that if somebody or something has an idea that becomes popular, that that idea or that that theory will sort of institutionalize itself and protect itself, so it, it won't always be open to having itself challenged. If you understand what I mean. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the chaos magician Peter Carroll has a great quote uh, that I can. I can summarize. I wish I could remember it verbatim, but it's essentially that any any school of thought that leads to liberation is essentially uh, eventually, if you take it far enough, it's going to lead to a different form of enslavement. And mm. that's not to say that you shouldn't. Again, that's not to say that you shouldn't uh, dedicate or you know rely have certain ideals to rely on, if you want to put it like that. But again, just understand that you know. Th- life is a heuristic essentially like all of life the human experience is heuristic and uh you should always be uh, ready and willing to update your view or or, uh, approach to things if the evidence suggests that you should and uh, because otherwise that's how people um find themselves closed off in their own niches of their psychology that develop into like neurosis or even psychosis at that point, you know, because if you dive into these things, you know, the, you know, the esoteric, uh, still the whole cornucopia of the mystical experience and, and comparative religion, um, it's really easy to take it in a very self-satisfying, uh, like ego satisfying way. You could go the whole Aleister Crowley route of just, you know, full-blown hedonistic indulgence leads to enlightenment. And, um, um, I mean, ultimately that doesn't, that doesn't really do anybody any good. That kind of, um, yeah, that's, that's a whole different thing there. But as I mean, you really have to, if you, if you want to, you know, speaking of gauges and subjective and objective and the dichotomy of the experience, if you want to actually be able to understand these things well, and this is why evolutionary psychology is so fundamental to it all, you need to understand how it affects other people as well. Not just, not just the common themes in your experience, though that's very important, but you need to understand how your own experiences affect other people, obviously, because, I mean, that's just, that's, you know, you could go all like Satanist, do what thou will, uh, but that's, if the human, if humanity had done that to begin with, we wouldn't have made it very far. We would have killed each other off a long time ago. So you gotta, you gotta look at the the full scale of things. And yeah, self preservation is very important. You should not, you should not take that lightly. Uh, but you know, I guess if anything, it's uh, the whole Buddhist middle path. Like you take what you need, and you leave some for others. You know, because uh, you know, we all we all helped get each other here to begin with. So you can't, you can't discount, you can't just dive into the microcosm and discount the macrocosm. If you're going to go deep sea diving, you got to be, uh, you got you got to be capable of coming back up and going back to shore. Otherwise, what did you, what did you go out diving for all that treasure for just to chill with it out in the middle of the ocean? <laughs> and come back up slowly as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um. Do you do you think reality exists on a spectrum? Yeah, absolutely. I think that there is 
a concrete reality, but that is, um, yeah, there, there, there's a sliding scale within that concrete measurement, most definitely. Hmm, because I feel like sometimes I, I, I'd struggle with marrying the concept of reality as a spectrum when it also seems to have sort of dualistic aspects to it as well. But I suppose perhaps there's a point on the spectrum where maybe you've got more body than mind and on the other side, you've got more mind than body. It's more like matter on one on one end of the scale and more ether on the other to, to throw in two other terms. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. And that's in many ways why I think the, uh, the, the trees of life and death are so interesting because they take... Um, in essence, they take into account both the, the the dichotomy and the spectrums found within the dichotomies, uh, because I think that at least for the human being, like I said, you can't get away from the dichotomy. However, you want to slice it, you know, life and death, conscious, unconscious, it's there. The number two, very interesting, and um, um, yeah, you uh, from there though there's obviously a huge sliding scale because this gets into, to um, the, you know, like differing belief systems, like something for one person can be very real. Whereas something for another person could be total B like that same thing for another person could be total BS, you know, which is like religion in general, for example. So there certainly is a sliding scale, but ultimately this is the reason I like, you know, the names I've mentioned, like John Keel, Carl Jung, uh, Manly P. Hall. Uh, I've been reading more Jacques Vallée recently, and I found that he is uh, – I've been familiar with him in the past. I've read through some of his stuff. But now that I've been coming back up on it, I'm, su- I'm surprised um, to, to remember how in step he is with this, with this whole same sentiment of, yeah, let's, let's research the um, – the you know, physical significance of whether it be religion or UFOs or just unexplainable things in general. Like, yeah, we want to investigate the actual physical phenomena, but perhaps the most important uh, piece to it all is the experiencer. Because hmm. um, if you, you know, sure, you have to vet things out on a case by case basis. And some people are just either very misinformed or delusional potentially with mental illness or uh, just looking for some attention. But by and large, um, especially, you know, I've done some, I've talked to a lot of different experiencers. I've seen UFOs myself, but I've also talked to a lot of different researchers um, and who have talked to far more people, experiencers than I have. And by and large, you find that most people, um, you know, you have to be a little kooky to begin with to want attention from this sort of thing. Like most people understand that these things are outlandish and not everyone is going to agree with them. And, you know, people are hesitant to draw attention to themselves in that respect. So, so more often than not, people are not, they're, they're not selling a load of BS when they're, when they're talking about these things. And, um, so all you really need when you're when you're trying to really investigate these things is to look at like i said the 
how the uh, how the experiencer is is affected because in many cases you know whether it be UFOs or or mystical experience um, even if you just want to say that these people it was totally fabricated some sort of like hallucinatory mind's eye effect they have radical changes uh, in their in the way they look at themselves and the world around them and the and oftentimes even in their physical habits and different things uh, you know some people like I said, whether it's UFO phenomena or religion, you have all sorts of like markings and different things. It's very curious. Um, uh, so, so yeah, um, something, something is going on here. And, and even if you can, you can explain away the phenomenology of it from a physical sense, you can't explain it. Uh, uh, you cannot explain it away from the microcosmic sense because uh, the person essentially becomes the carrier of the experience and it manifests in many different ways. And, and, and yeah, from, from that point on, that's, that's kind of like the middle area of, um, of the subjective and objective that we've been talking about a little bit, like science, science can see more and more clearly that, that that middle area exists, but we've only just begun to even um, establish like the initial, even theoretical mechanics of it, let alone, um, all the poor implications of it. Mm, definitely. Uh, yeah, Jack Pillay is one of my favorite writers when it comes to this kind of thing. I think is the similarities between the UFO abduction experiences and encounters that, that people had with the, with the Fae in, in Ireland and other European countries there. Uh, I mean, th- those, those similarities are incredible, really, and they're, they're well worth paying attention to. And when it comes to trying to understand what what these things are that are happening to people. Yeah. And, you know, I think in the long run, you know, if I were a betting man and um, I was just coming up with my best possible explanation for these things, I think that there, there very clearly is some sort of uh, internal projection process that's happening that, that kind of facilitates an altered state of consciousness in the, in, in the individual or several individuals. But that becomes essentially fertile soil for other manifestation um, if it's around. And I think that this could potentially tie into uh, you know, the people talk about certain places being like antennas almost, or to have some sort of weird, maybe etheric resonance, like the fact that point, Pleasant West Virginia just erupted in all sorts of strange phenomena for a little bit. You know, you find these localized points um, throughout stories and cases and history. And um, I think that when you have this fertile soil for an experience and it becomes easier to slip into that altered state of consciousness, whether it's voluntary or not, I do think that there are things that can that can piggyback off of that. And, you know, this is obviously very clear conjecture at this point, but my, my brain just goes ultimately always back to the, the, the very Keely and Jacques Vallée kind of approach where, if anything, these things are probably more uh, interdimensional and able to navigate the time space in such a different way than we understand it, more so than, um, than like interplanetary. Yeah, so yeah, like um, from a, a fourth dimension, I suppose. 
yeah, it could be it could be different dimensions sitting just on top of ours, like transposed, or it could be, you know, there's the whole interesting conjectural, of course, idea that a lot of like potential aliens are us from like a distant future, thousands or millions of years later. Like who knows? It could be any or both of those things. Yeah. There are so many great ideas out there, aren't there? <laughs> yeah. It's very cool. And, and that tends to, that makes some people shy away from it, but for me, and it seems like for most of the people who are interested in this stuff, that's the beauty of it right there. I mean, the, the whole, what if idea is, is the thing that keeps us all coming back. Hmm. It's very fascinating. And um, yeah, some people, Jung's got a great quote about that, um, about how investigating the unexplainable and unconscious mechanisms uh, of the human experience, it's, it's often considered uh, like foolhardy and potentially even like self-destructive and dangerous, but isn't any great adventure considered that <laughs> cases yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's a good and, point yeah it's, yeah and it's very true you know it harkens back to the whole archetypal hero's journey that joseph campbell talks about and he was of course directly inspired by jung and yeah i mean we all we all do have that own i mean you have to you have to engage in your own psychological process again as if you were like building uh, a real a real building or just a real tangible effective piece of your life in, in in any sense and and if you don't go about it in those steps then you'll probably end up doing some building anyway but but i guess it's the difference between just winging it seeing what happens and and uh taking a methodical approach to it because you know i believe this was a tenant of the uh the uh, the the mystery schools of antiquity that uh, if I remember correctly that all that is in the human consciousness does not originate from the human consciousness and obviously that means physical environmental stimulus and it can also potentially mean um, other levels of influence whether it be um, other humans in subliminal sort of ways or other you know, entities and, and yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's a lot of weight to that. Hmm. Um, another thing that I, I noticed from your book is that you, you talk in, about the dream experiences that you had and they're, they're very vivid and detailed. I, I just wonder, was that something that you found was always apparent in your dreams or is it something that you practice techniques in order to help you dream in that way? Um, I, I guess you could say that as the dreams continued, I started to like sync up with them a little more. But as soon as I started uh, detoxing from the medications, uh, I started having pretty, pretty immediately vivid dreams. And it wasn't like every night per se by any means, but it was very consistent. And when I would have dreams, they would often be recurring and they would be extremely vivid. And yeah, that uh, that was kind of what opened the door to me uh, into like Jungian psychology, which, which kind of represents the threshold of material science and uh, crossing over into the esoteric. And it uh, became very apparent to me eventually that uh, the more the more vivid 
and intense, not intense in a negative way, but just intense in, in the full grab it has on you. Um, the, so those qualities of a dream will denote essentially how, uh, poignant and impactful it is to like what kind of message is driving and how important it is that you get a hold of that message immediately. Um, you know, like Jacques Vallée talks about how uh, the UFO experience, if you wanted to, if you want to kind of boil it down to one gauge, so to speak, it seems to be similar to how a thermostat regulates temperature in a building or something. And that this UFO experience seems to, whether or not it's uh, potentially very physical, um, it it helps the human being gauge their um, their their physical experiences in in very strange, uh, inventive, anomalous ways, and and dreams are the same way. It's it very much is a is a, is a gauge with which uh, to to investigate and to deeper, more deeply understand uh, the mechanisms of your life that are already present, but you might not have any any conscious. Um, understanding of and and yeah so and it's yeah it's very important to uh to really if you want to get anything out of your dreams you want to understand anything out of them you've got to really pay attention to every detail it's important to write it down as soon as you wake up because not only will it stick in your brain better but um you know it when you're reading something like that, uh, after you've experienced it, it kind of helps you synthesize it in a different way. And, um, and then you could kind of create that feedback loop. You know, it's a very common, um, demonstrated, uh, phenomena that when you pay attention to your dreams, you will start to notice them more. You will remember them more and they will eventually become more and more vivid. Science has no idea why, but in my opinion, in the opinions of others, um, it's very clear that this is because it's some sort of self ref, rep, blah, excuse me, self referential um, gauge process, like a like a thermostat gauging temperature, uh, and that's how all these unexplainable experiences are. That that is what creates the fertile soil for these experiences is your own psyche uh, trying to gauge something that you, that is affecting your life in a way that you do not readily understand and so it's it's if it's going to be resolved or approached at all it's got to be manifested in some way uh, whether it be sleep paralysis or multiple personality or um, um, possessions or ufos or phantom limbs there are many 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 examples of this projection process in how it relates to physical phenomenology and the internal experience in relationship to um, to trauma. So it's almost, it seems as if in many cases, if not all, in some way, this is um, like, even if like angelic or demonic for that matter, in some way, this is a response to um, alarm signals going off in the psyche. You know, these projections in many ways are like an alarm bell ringing off. Right, yeah. I it was interesting to read about when you dreamt of a woman called Ramona and then met her because it made me think of the Scott Pilgrim graphic novels. Is it Yeah, man. <laughs> oh man. I'm glad you caught that. That's definitely what it's from. 
for sure. Um, and uh, because, you know, I, I didn't bring this up in the book, but I, I'd be happy to give you a, a fun little anecdote here. Um, yeah, please do. <laughs> yeah, that actually, uh, I have a lot of uh, nostalgia around the, the, the Scott Pil- the movie and the graphic novels, because um, I actually uh, eventually, because Ramona is not her real name, but um, that became the name for her because that was like, that was my nickname for her for a long time. Uh because I eventually told her about the dream, not at first, not at first, <laughs> but, uh, and because uh, she was really cool and she found it fascinating, and um, she, uh, yeah, it, 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 it just we both seen the movie, and at that point, it just kind of became an inside joke between us, like um, because uh, <laughs> it was funny, man. Um, that uh, that 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 scene in the movie where he's just wandering around with like a scribbled picture of her, like, "Have you seen this girl? Have you seen this girl?" <laughs> um, yeah, I definitely felt like that in some cases initially. It, it was uh, pretty curious, um, and it. I mean, if anything, that shows. Uh, excuse me the uh, the curious projection process um, and the relationship that we have with art and how. I mean that that in and of itself um, helps us relate to things in such a radically different perspective. Um, And, and art is just the tip of the iceberg. I think people are really willing to understand how, how art can do that. But for some reason, uh, the general public is still very slowly catching up to the fact that in that regard, something like art and spirituality and even 14 phenomena are very similar. Mm. And again, that doesn't take away from the agency of any of these things. You know, this, it's a very common esoteric concept that not even art is uh, orig- originates from the individual psyche. It's just things like we're just floating down a river of experience and happen to catch some of the fish that we can pull down and, and, uh, and do something with. Mm. I mean, I, I think as well, it's some of the history of certain artists, um, artists who are interested in this kind of thing that element of their biography and their history isn't it sometimes isn't represented as much as other other aspects of their life very true and an interesting aside that is specifically on that note um you know we're talking about uh like evolutionary mechanisms and and pressures and you and you're talking about the individual artists and their legacies so to speak it's uh it's curious to note that uh, many many spiritual visionaries throughout history have been noted um to have epilepsy in many cases uh some of them being very very concrete like in the case of um the the writer dostoevsky uh very well known to have uh, I believe he had actually specifically temporal lobe epilepsy. And then there are others that we'll never know for sure because it was so far away. But there are people that um, like scientists that have looked into it and done studies and highly speculate that um, and are are willing to essentially put their name on the fact that people like uh, like Dante, you know, the great Italian poet had epilepsy, people like Julius Caesar like Napoleon Bonaparte um, is one of them. There's, there's a, there's a laundry list of people. Um, and, um, and it's, it's curious to note uh, 
like so you could find sleep paralysis at the not only at the beginning of recorded history but at the beginning of recorded like spirituality it's a very much recurring motif and epilepsy is the same same kind of thing um and leprosy for that matter leprosy is millions of years old and even smallpox had a demon uh, at one point in history and uh so epilepsy is very curious because especially when it is uh, focalized around the temporal lobe, you specifically get very, very intense religious experiences and visions. Um, and that can turn very good or very bad because I found a great list of visionaries like Michelangelo was another one who is considered to, to have epilepsy. Um, so you could find all these people who are all these great visionaries, but what about the really sick ones that, uh, cause of course the, the epilepsy.org or whatever, is not going to put the, the demons on there, but I'm very curious in the, uh, in the inversion of that. And lo and behold, you can definitely find some of those inverted examples. Like you can find several serial killers that have had not only epilepsy, but temporal lobe epilepsy, uh, like Richard Ramirez, the night stalker, the guy who was, completely into Satan, like doing ritual, like praying to Satan before going out and committing crimes. And he's just the tip of the iceberg. There are a lot of others like the, um, uh, I can't remember his moniker, but there was Arthur Shawcross, a very prolific killer. He had temporal lobe epilepsy and was also very, very, uh, what do you call it? Um, uh, just like fascinated and obsessed with like really graphic esoteric symbols and things. Um, and there are others. And then you also find the classic case. Uh, well, you know, let me, uh, let me toss out some other serial killer names just for, for the fun of the listeners and everything like John Wayne Gacy also considered to have um, epilepsy. Um, he has uh, reports of it in it throughout his childhood. And that guy, although not obsessed with the, the devil or anything, clearly obsessed with symbols and altered states of personality and it's also curious to note that Gacy, he did not use the soft edges of clown makeup, like circles around eyes or anything, a thing that's kind of inviting about clown makeup, like maybe the only thing that could be considered inviting <laughs> about clown makeup. He used the sharp angles, and it honestly gives it a much more creepy, sinister look. And so that's just another interesting note. And uh, David Berkowitz, son of Sam, the guy who thought that he was being stalked by demons that were inhabiting the bodies of uh, his neighbor's dog. He also mm. he also had uh, epilepsy as a child. And um, interesting to note that he is now a born-again Christian in jail, in prison. So, yeah, but there's also the case of uh, Annalise Michelle, the German girl from the 1970s that was very, very well um, like to the T, like lots of, you know, she went in for regular checkups and met with neurologists and stuff. And she it was very well known that she had temporal lobe epilepsy. Uh, but it also snowballed into a full blown uh, a case of possession that went on for like two years with uh, concurrent and continuous exorcisms. And not, not for like literally the full two years, but continuous. Like I think they did like eight hours of exorcisms a week for two years or something like that. And, um, it's a very curious case because while very clearly the it's all beginning with, and this obviously, I feel like this goes without saying, but I should disclaim it anyway, that I'm not saying here that people with temporal lep, 
bleh, temporal lobe epilepsy are um, possessed or anything like that. But it's very curious to note what biological mechanisms could potentially maybe be opening the door for uh, in, yeah. in extreme cases that go unchecked and unregulated. And so it looks like, you know, just considering, and it, again, it, there's two different levels of analysis here. You can analyze the, the, the physical ramifications, but you also look at what is this woman being possessed by an, uh, some sort of spiritual demon or not. But also you could just set that aside and look at the deterioration of this woman in very specific ways. And that in and of itself leads you to, it basically makes it unable, it, it, it makes the researcher unable to fully vet out what's happening one way or the other. Like there's clearly something deeper going on here because, you know, we're, we're talking about potentially quasi physical manifestations of things on like a group level, something that tests the boundaries of what might be physical and whatnot to begin with. Possessions are a classic example. Possessions are on the rise in the U S um, and I mean, despite all of our atheist materialism, something like possession or, uh, and, uh, exorcisms are more prevalent now, interestingly, than they ever have been. And I don't necessarily know what, what the full implications of that are. I'm not necessarily implying that more people are getting possessed or anything, but if, if nothing else, it's, it's a very interesting takeaway that, uh, these, seemingly superstitious ideas have not died yet. And there's even, um, you know, but so before I get into the next thing I was going to say, the case of Annalise Michelle, super interesting because not only were doctors present for a lot of these things, but there are audio recordings released of, uh, of her, a lot of her exorcism rites online that you can find. And there were so many different uh, witnesses from friends to family to the the people involved in the exorcist uh, uh, it, or exorcism and and so forth, and she had essentially all the classic cases, uh, symptoms of an of a possession, other than levitation. Uh, there were no reports of that, but she was speaking um, re reportedly. And granted, not all of this is caught on uh, on tape, of course, but um. There are uh, reports of her speaking in like Mandarin and Latin, like fluently and no, having like a, the essential telepathy associated with possession that is able to call out people's innermost guilt and having like intense strength and all these different things, uh, the different voices. But then again, there's also the, the heavy superstitious element, which you can't get away from in these things and, and kind of murkies the water of it because these priests also said that she was being inhabited by the spirits of not only like Lucifer, but, but Hitler and, um, and Nero, and there was a Judas. And it's like, at, at a certain point, you know, sure, I definitely think that there's validity to her, her personal experiences. But when you start listing off like the who's who of, um, of like, historical <laughs> supervillain, it becomes, it kind of starts to sound more like a comic book or something. So um, yeah, very interesting story though. Take that for what you will, uh, for any listeners, but, um, yeah, I mean, note... I think, sorry. Oh, no worries. I was going to say that 
one one thing that I'm interested in is it's just the nature of ideas and what ideas are because if you look at it, an idea is something that exists in in your mind in in your subconscious sometimes or in your conscious mind as well. It goes from your subconscious to your conscious mind, and it's almost like it's something that wants to be manifested in the material world. And some ideas are pretty negative in terms of violence and and things like this. I always wonder if on the nature of ideas and going back to what you were saying about how perhaps epilepsy is just it's a condition that allows something through that might not remember that might not be the case for everybody is that it, it might just allow these sort of more negative violent ideas to come into a person's conscious mind right yeah and epilepsy is specifically so fascinating from a uh the historical scientific perspective, because it's something that, for the most part, for the va- uh, the vast majority of examples, is very it's very easy to essentially um, find it throughout history because it's a it's a specific set of criteria. But something like schizophrenia was you can't you couldn't find that throughout the historical records to save your life. You can make conjecture. Uh, and and you can you can make inferences that are pretty safe in many cases, but schizophrenia covers such a huge array of symptoms that could be, in historical terms, classified as hysteria or or hallucination or you know there's there's so many different um, you know dementia, so many different ways that people classified it, and there wasn't any really. Um, physical thing like someone having a seizure it's uh it's very much all within the psyche so it's much harder to pinpoint in the records but um the interesting uh case or on the note of ideas uh what you were talking about there and um um how yeah they seem to seek a manifestation of some kind uh whether whether good or bad there's a book coming out in October and I don't know this guy or anything. So I'm not like getting a kickback or anything. I just think it's very fascinating. And um, he's a, I can't remember what school it is, but he is an Ivy league uh, graduate and is a, a, um, a psychiatrist and he's been in practice for decades and sometime in the nineties, I believe. Yeah, it was the nineties. He, uh, he was approached by, um, Catholic priests who had an anomalous case for him. This, it, it's very interesting that uh, that possession should be and exorcism rights should be on the rise uh, in the in the day of mental health. And when if you talk to a, a priest about any of these things, they'll tell you that they've certainly had to adapt and become more and more scrutinous in order to like essentially stay alive in this type of social climate you know because if they get caught and and certainly this is not their intention so it's not like they're trying to do this but if they were ever caught at like accidentally very clearly performing exorcism rites on someone with mental illness that's the end of them um and and on on that note you know the priests that actually finished the uh that did the annalise michelle exorcisms they were charged with manslaughter because she died and um um so yeah, that was actually a huge turning point for the Catholic, uh, for the the whole Catholic Church and their uh, their approach to exorcism. So in this case, these these priests approach this Ivy League psychiatrist and say, 
listen, we understand you're skeptical. We wouldn't have come to talk to you if we didn't think that you weren't skeptical. You know, we want the skepticism, but so we want to see if uh, we want you to have some sessions with this woman because she very clearly has some mental illness, but it seems to be compounding into something that transcends mental illness. And we want your opinion on um, if you can explain this away or not. And he had a few sessions with her. And um, uh, granted, this is anecdotal, you know, so just take this for what it is. And this is why it's going to be very interesting to read his book to see what all is concrete about all of this, because he's written some material, but it's the first book coming out in October. And apparently she had some very disturbing classical examples like multiple personality that's going into like really intense demonic voices and and poltergeist like telekinetic type things like throwing books off walls and stuff and he went back to the priests after a while she didn't do it right out the gate after like a third session or something he said i can't believe i'm saying this but it looks like she's possessed and uh they performed some exorcism rites on her and more symptoms started manifesting you know he pissed the demon off and um they were never able to um, eventually verify or get a complete process on that woman because she ended up disappearing as the story goes. But this, this uh, psychiatrist continued to work with um, this, the, just the Catholic church in general for the, the last like 25, 30 years now. And he's actually maintained um, a professional, um, you know, respected psychiatric practice still. So, so this is going to be very interesting. I'm looking forward to see uh, where this takes the field of empirical investigations of something like demonology. But again, it just goes to show that um, there's something going on here. However you want to slice the pie, there's something going on. And um, it really, if anything, it harkens back to the idea of um, ideas, good or bad, being viruses and how um, a virus, it wants to find a place to, um, it wants to find a place to incubate and multiply hmm. and um, essentially, and that's what, that's what these ideas are doing. They incubate in the psyches of individuals, however they get there to begin with, and they multiply because that's the, that the, the prime uh, drive that a human seems to experience like the prime side effect almost of having an idea when you become like obsessed with an idea in, in in a sense if you don't if you don't multiply it that becomes the end of you you know that's how some people get engulfed in their own internal fantasies and worlds that stem into neurosis and psychosis and i mean just to be very candid uh to illustrate this further that's in some ways why i had to write the book you know because if you keep all of it to yourself, sometimes it, it becomes detrimental to you. But if you can find a way to explain it to other people in a way that is, is truthful and honest and as genuine as, as you can make, you know, make sure you do your due diligence and don't put out pseudoscience and stuff like that, bad research. But if you can, um, facilitate, if, if you can project that to other people, then, I mean, that's what the experience is all about in the long run. Like I said at the beginning, you know, it's a, it's a two-way street. You have to interact with the world around you in order to get the full benefit of, I mean, what is essentially the alchemical process right here, you know, transmutation in and of itself. 
Mm, definitely. I completely understand the need to write a book with all the research you were doing. Having having all that information in your head. Yeah, I can definitely understand why you wrote the book. <laughs> so now that you've written the book, just to end the show with, what have you got planned next? Well, especially given how quiet things are in the world right now in terms of my daily life, you know, people staying at home, generally speaking, and not a whole lot of the, the social world happening aside from aside from the protests you hear about still. <laughs> um, I am definitely just about ready to, I've actually already begun the initial processes of writing a new manuscript. Um, I really like what this book did initially. Um, I'm happy that it's gotten some, it's gotten positive reception for sure, but it's only given me, it's definitely given me answers to, to the things that I wanted to research to begin with. But as answers always tend to do, it also brings about more questions. And so I'm very interested in diving into those questions. So I don't see much time. I don't see any reason to, to wait any longer, you know, so I've already started the research and, uh, and the initial ideas and, but I haven't started typing it out yet. So that's coming up next before long. And it's, um, this book to give a little bit of a teaser, whereas dive manual was meant to encompass a lot of different things like sort of the mystical experience in general, um, uh, you know, from comparative religion to Fortean investigations and looks into the mechanics of things like ceremony and ritual and prayer how hypnosis is related to those things and dreaming, etc. This is going to, this next book is going to more specifically focus on uh, the relationship that a human being has to uh, these unexplainable entities. You know, in a way, mm. there will be some sort of investigation, um, it, it, at least in a theoretical sense, uh, as to the the like potential sentience of these things. But of course, Science can't really, really pin that down yet. So the ultimate, the ultimate takeaway uh, and premise that I'm uh, looking to achieve is set aside the relevance of sentience and in the uh, in the in the sense of what we've been talking about this whole time, where looking at how these experiences directly affect a human being on a, on a neurological level and and like an existential level and even like a a physical bodily organ level in some cases, um, you know, these things have recurring motifs, just like the symbols themselves. And these experience will, these experiences will affect people in similar ways. Um, that's not to say that it's all just determinism. There is an individual flair and like twist to all of these, but they all follow, similar components. And, uh, I, you know, I think it's high time that people, uh, take more of an approach to that, um, it, it, to investigating that. Cause there are a lot of psychologists like Jung who are interested in vetting out the initial implications, but, but honestly, because of their, um, their scholastic ties and their, uh, their reputations, you can only take certain things so far. And, um, I see, I see the, uh, the implications and I see people haven't taken it as far as they could have. So I'm, I'm going to dive in. I'm going to do it. <laughs> we'll see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good, man. I, I look forward to it. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. This is a real pleasure. Um, let me know if you ever want to have a round two, there's plenty more to talk about. The book go uh, dives into all sorts of different material. So 
there's a, there's a lot to be said for the research. So we could go into all different directions. Yeah, man, that sounds great. So if people want to find out more about you and the book, how best do they do that? Well, I finally set up a website. So you can go to um, divemind.net. And that's all you need, really. You got you got links to any interview I've done. You can find um, a, a link to the you know to buy the book there. And you can find me on uh, Twitter, which is also uh, that's connected to the website. But just to give it here, that's uh, Dive Mind six six seven, all lowercase, no spaces or anything. So yeah, get the book if you like. There's going to be more coming down the horizon, that's for sure. And uh, if anybody ever has any questions, you know, I'm pretty open to, I love having conversations about this stuff. So go ahead and contact me. Be happy to hear about it. Cool. Well, I'll make sure to put all that in the show notes. Awesome. Appreciate it. Well, uh, well, yeah, I hope the listeners got a little bit of something out of this. And uh, yeah, again, thanks for having me on. This was a lot of fun, Rick. Uh, you're very welcome. Thank you, Anthony. That was such a fun, wide-ranging chat. Looking back, maybe I should have kept the interview going and made this a two-part episode. I tried to focus most of my questions on Anthony's book itself, but given the broad spectrum of the subjects it covers, it felt right to go off on a couple of tangents during the interview and get his thoughts on some of those profound mysteries we're all interested in. It was interesting as well to discuss the connections between visionary experience and conditions like epilepsy, along with other phenomena such as possession, which in some examples seems to exist somewhere between mental illness and something far more perplexing. I think Anthony explained himself well regarding those topics, but looking back, I'm not sure I did a good job in adding to the conversation there. Possession is a really interesting subject and something I'd like to cover in a future episode, but it also has a problematic history when it comes to how people seen as being possessed are often treated as was plain in the case of Annalise Michelle, that Anthony referenced. Anyway, I apologise if anyone was upset with my contribution to that part of the interview. I'm still learning my craft as an interviewer and will definitely learn from this experience. It shouldn't take anything away though from what I think was overall a really interesting chat with a great guest. If you agree, please consider rating the episode, sharing it on social media and following the podcast on Twitter if you aren't doing that already. It all really helps the show to grow and find new listeners. You can find some other sphere on Twitter at spherical underscore pod and on most of the well-known podcast platforms. If you'd like to get in touch with me at SphereHQ, please email someothersphere at gmail.com. Until next time, stay safe and well, and thank you very much for listening.